If you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Some of you didn't think we would ever get out of Romans, chapter 8, but we have. But we're not getting very far out of Romans, chapter 8, I'm afraid. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, the pastor of the Lutheran Church here are our hosts, um, and I went to a meeting for Christians in the city who were concerned about helping refugees who were being resettled here, back when refugees were being resettled here more commonly. And um, during the meeting, there was a lot of different churches, so they were being super diplomatic. And whenever they came close to a subject that was talking about, you know, encouraging the refugees to convert to Christianity, to uh, become Christians, uh, they got really vague and sort of communicated by winks and hints more than overt statements. And when we left, uh, he and I, who are kind of different uh, ends of the theological spectrum in some ways, um, we both had the same complaint. We thought, wasn't it strange that when it came around to the subject of proselytizing that they didn't seem to be very direct? But I realized he was more uncomfortable with it because um, he was afraid proselytizing was what they really wanted to do, and they were just being uh, vague about it. And I was frustrated because proselytizing is what I really wanted them to do, and they were being vague about it. But we were both a little uh, put off. Um, proselytizing is not the right word, I know. Uh, it's a negative connotation word with all sorts of things that are inappropriate for Christians. You know, it means, it implies something's coercive or unloving, disrespectful, and um, I don't mean that. Uh, those things are inappropriate for us. But even if I came up with a perfect term to talk about persuading people who aren't Christians to become Christians, um, it still gives most people the creeps, the whole subject, right? Um, persuading people to change their most deeply held beliefs uh, and to come into the Christian faith. Um, we kind of hope it happens, but don't know if we really want to be the ones through whom it happens. Um, why do you think it is that the subject is so creepy to us? What's so uncomfortable about the idea of persuading your friends uh, to put faith in Jesus like you have, if you're already a Christian? I mean, think of it this way. This is a, uh, another minister. I heard a sermon. My wife was playing in the house last week. It's a really good sermon. But the minister said, if you had, um, if you were, had a child with MS, and you were in a support group of other parents with MS, and you had... Uh, come across a new diet that you had started using with your child who had MS, and that child had become markedly better in terms of his symptoms with MS, doing uh, better than in a long time, and you're very excited about this progress in their life. Um, if you went to the support group meeting for the other parents of children with MS, do you think that family should tell about the diet that has helped their child a lot? I mean, they might not be able to prove that it's what was helping. They might not be able to convince people that that's really what was helping or that it would make any difference to anybody else. People might be skeptical about it. But do you think people would feel offended because this family said, hey, we'd like you to know about this thing that's really helped us and maybe it will help you? I don't think people would be offended by that at all. But somehow, the thought that we'd say, look, Jesus Christ has proved out in my life, and, and with all my questions, to be who he says he is. And I'm pretty excited about that. I'd like for you to consider it, too. 
seems different somehow. It seems like a, a different level of social awkwardness uh, to be avoided. Um, but that's what I want us to talk about today is why and how we can be willing to go public with our faith and speak about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with our friends. So I'm not going to tackle the whole subject of uh, what uh, makes evangelism, if you want to use that term, what makes that hard, difficult for us. But I want to talk narrowly about what we see in the text we have today, uh, which is the issue of compassion. Christians' compassion for their friends who are not yet Christians. Because what we have is at the beginning of a long section in Romans about uh, the relationship of Jewish people to the Christian gospel is uh, the Apostle Paul sort of opening his heart to talk about the compassion he has for his fellow countrymen. And using his example, I want us to ask uh, how this can happen uh, more richly in our lives. Think about why we struggle to care for people who are outside the faith, and what it would take to change us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read this passage. Father, please open our hearts and minds to you as we read your word. Um, We pray that you'd let us see and think and feel like you do about our city and about our friends and neighbors. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, beginning at uh, Romans 9, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're going to set out to try to persuade people who don't have enough compassion for Uh, their friends. You're going to persuade a group of Christians to care more about their friends who aren't Christians. How would you try to persuade them? My uh, first go-to for most any kind of persuasion is shame. Try to shame people into it. Doesn't usually work that well, but it always seems like an appealing thing to try. I listened to a singer when I was a young Christian, when I was in college, named Keith Green. Some of you uh, hoary heads will remember Keith Green. Uh, passionate dude. Man, he was uh, all ethos all the time, singing about his Christian faith. And he was a little impatient with people who were not as zealous as he was. So he had a song about uh, being compassionate towards your friends who aren't Christians. And uh, he set out to shame us out of it. And when he set out to shame people, he reared back and shamed them. So here's what he said. Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? But you close your eyes and you pretend the job's done. 
And then he says, oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. That's all I ever hear. But no one aches and no one hurts and no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. But you just lay back and keep soaking it in. So, is you uncomfortable yet? How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Says, Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. So, you know. This is heady stuff for college students. I've gone back and listened to it a few times since, and I thought, you know, that's a, that's a pretty rough, rough way to treat people. But at the same time, I thought, but golly, I don't care very much. You know, I can see why he wants to shame people like me, because my compassion just seems pretty paltry compared to his and certainly compared to the Apostle Paul's. Shame doesn't change you. It doesn't make you more compassionate. Shame just makes you more ashamed, is my experience. But most Christians I know really want to be more compassionate. They'd love to have uh, a heart more like Paul's heart for the people that he loved. And sort of wonder why it is that we feel as callous as we do. And uh, don't move out uh, praying hard or... uh, initiating conversations and things as much as we might wish we did, right? So I want us to think about how that can happen. Um, uh, How can we have greater compassion for our friends who aren't yet Christians? And we're going to talk three different things. One is um, why we need to have compassion. Second, what are the obstacles to compassion? And the third is uh, how we can grow in our compassion. And they aren't as long as that sounds. So first, you need to be convinced that compassion is needful. Are, are, are people who aren't Christians really in trouble with God? Which is kind of the premise behind being compassionate. Uh, what Paul says here is, you know, it's my, he's, I'm in sorrow and unceasing anguish for uh, my Jewish countrymen. You know, he's a Jew too, and just like Jesus was. Unceasing anguish for my countrymen. Now, why is that? Anguish for what? It's because he's concerned that they are not where they need to be with God and, and they really are in peril because of that. He says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, if you have a Bible, you could look forward in that, but he says, You know, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God that my countrymen might be saved, which is Christian language for reconciled to God. Jesus came to our rescue. We had been alienated from God because of our independence and rebellion. And Jesus came to reconnect us to God, to forgive us and bring us back home. And um, Paul says, my Jewish countrymen need that every bit as much as I do. And, and he wishes something that I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I even aspire to. But he says, I would wish myself cut off, uh, anathema, condemned if they could be accepted and received. And I mean, that's a profound level of compassion. Right? I, don't, I don't love hardly anybody uh, that way. But that kind of compassion is beautiful when we see it in his life. It's not condescending, right? He's not saying, I wish the stupid Jewish people would be as smart as I am and come to their senses like I did. There's never a hint of that. With Paul, it wouldn't be appropriate if there was, but he doesn't have it. He's just saying he loves them. And uh, he's not proud that he's a Christian, 
and thinks that he's, you know, cornered the truth and they haven't. And so, you know, they should admire him and follow in his footsteps. He's, there's none of that condescension in what he's doing. He's just saying, I, I'm a person whose life was broken by my rebellion against God, like everybody else. And I'm so thankful and happy uh, for what Jesus has given me that I'd love for them to have it too. And so that's kind of what he says. But is he right? I mean, are people who aren't Christians in peril? Is that true? Um, Does it matter enough for us to risk social awkwardness to speak to people? Does it matter enough for us to give our money away sacrificially to try to spread this message? Well, um, I mean, does the alienation from God that people experience in this life continue into the next life as well? I mean, these are the basic questions you have to ask, and uh, they're hard questions to dodge. Because what we're told in the mildest way to say it is that uh, the next life, apart from a restored relationship with God through Jesus, the next life uh, is a life where God's mercy and care are withdrawn from us. So that as uh, C.S. Lewis said, there wind up being two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And the trajectory of that uh, into eternity is a terrifying prospect for us, one we probably just don't think about very much because it's so uncomfortable. Um, But Paul's not wrong about this. The reason Jesus came, the reason his life and his death weren't superfluous was that We've alienated ourselves from God and we've broken everything else in the world because of it. So when the Bible describes our uh, plight as people who are God's creatures, but who are cut off from him, it says that this is the root of all of the anomie and psychological uh, unhealth that we experience. It's why all of our relationships are broken and don't work right. Um, It's why the environment we live in is a mess. And these things are not going to get better apart from God's intervention and rescue of us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what he came to do for us, right? To reconcile us to God and then to begin to undo all the collateral damage of our war of independence against God. And so this is what's animating Paul's anguish. He's saying, I want this for my countrymen whom I love. I want them to experience God's mercy, too. And I dread for them uh, what happens to them if they continue to reject their Messiah who has come. You remember the whole point, Paul's writing this letter to this church he's never been to, but he's trying to move to Rome. And uh, because he wants that church to be his base for spreading the Christian message all the way out into Europe, all the way to Spain is his goal. And he wants that church to be a church that will be a real base for him uh, with the spread of the Christian message in the world. And so what he's eager for is that these people would become compassionate for their friends who aren't Christians. They'd become compassionate even for uh, people in other countries that they don't even know that aren't Christians yet and be willing to sacrifice for their sake. And so he's digging in. He's trying to uh, push them towards having a greater heart of compassion. I'm going to make a quick parenthesis about... uh, 
the subject matter of these three chapters we're going to look at, and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks. But are Jews a separate category when it comes to uh, faith in God and being rightly related to him? Um, because they're the chosen people, right? And Paul talks about all the gifts they have. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and uh, even the Messiah came ethnically as a Jew. Um, do they? Is it the case that we need to speak to our friends who are not Christians and also not Jews, but Jewish people are a separate category? Because the New Testament kind of raises that question a good bit, and it's, some of the answer to it is confusing. But the general answer is that anybody, Jew or Gentile, uh, needs Jesus Christ for his mercy to be reconnected to God. And anybody, Jew or Gentile, apart from Jesus, doesn't have much hope for that, right? That's, he's our only way we know to be made right with God again. The Jews are different in some ways, but I'll give you a couple of things that don't work as our understanding of the Jewish people, and I mean ethnically Jewish, I don't mean the nation of Israel, the political system right now, I mean ethnically Jewish people. Uh, one approach that has happened hor horrifyingly in the church has been uh, anti-Semitism. Say so we hate the Jews. Uh, to accuse the Jews of being somehow uh, more complicit than the rest of us in the rejection and death of the Messiah. Um, this has been used to justify uh, cruelty and hatred in ways that are abominable and should never have any appeal for Christians. But that's been one way people have tried to understand the Jews over against the faith in the Messiah. Others have said, maybe um, there's a two-track system here. And uh, Gentiles and people who embrace the Messiah have a relationship with God down this track and wind up uh, in heaven with him and then in the new creation and then, but Jews have a different track, and they have a different destiny with God and a different way of being right with God. And that's a good try, I think, but it just doesn't hold up biblically. You'll see as we read through the rest in Romans. There's one tree that is God's tree, and it's a Jewish tree, but us Gentiles get grafted into it. But there's just one tree. So the two paths, that idea doesn't work very well. And then the third path is for people just to say sentimentally, I just want everybody to be okay. I don't, I, want, I don't want God to judge anyone. I don't want anyone to be in trouble because of the rebellion against God. So I'm just going to hope everybody's okay, Jew and Gentile. So it doesn't matter. You know, we're all, we're all nice. God's probably nice. We'll probably be okay. Right? And that's an easy thing to be sentimental about. You can see the appeal. But if that were true, why in the world did Jesus come and suffer on our behalf the way he did? Um, it was needful for him to do what he did. It's not superfluous for him to do what he did. So Jew or Gentile, people who aren't Christians need Jesus just like we do. And we should care about it. It should hurt us um, when our friends don't know him. I had a philosophy teacher, I guess he was a grad assistant, since when I was in college. And he was being snarky, but he was also being honest. But he, told, he was talking to the Christians in his philosophy class, and he said, if you think that people who aren't Christians are going to fry in hell like a Jimmy Dean sausage, then why aren't you knocking on my door?
And I thought, yeah, he's, he's popping off and he's scoffing. But I've never forgotten the point he made. Because basically he was saying, you say you believe it, but your love toward me doesn't make me believe that you believe it. Why aren't you knocking on my door? And uh, I'm not advocating for door knocking evangelism strategies and things. I'm just saying, I'm trying to come to terms with why don't I care more about my friends who aren't Christians and trying to find a way that you and I both can grow in our compassion. Big obstacle I want us to talk about today is just this. Um, We have an us versus them attitude that undermines our usefulness in telling people about the hope that we have. An us versus them attitude. This is the obstacle to our compassion. In Rome, the Jews and the Gentiles were there together in church, like all these early churches. You know, they were mixed uh, race churches. And, but in Rome, uh, the Jews had gotten kicked out by the governmental authorities and were just now starting to come back into town and back into the church. And so there's always tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were won down religiously, right? Because the Jews were the, you know, they were the, the, not the adopted children, but the natural children, you know, and the Gentiles were just, you know, adopted in. And so the Gentiles were always sort of second class religiously, but now politically the Gentiles were won up on the Jews because the Jews were sort of a despised group in Rome now. And so the Christians were living in some favor with Rome, but if the Jews come back in, there's tension there, right? There's the us versus them thing, uh, religiously and politically for them. And it created an us versus them dynamic, or at least it usually creates an us versus them dynamic. But when you, when you start thinking about our group and the other group, um, you start inevitably thinking, the other group is worse off. The other group needs God's grace more profoundly than I do. My group has a different standing with God than their group because of our innate morality or our innate intelligence. Um, the us versus them not only undermines our sense of how people need God's grace, it undermines our compassion. Because Christians, dealing with their friends who aren't Christians, are taught never to condescend. We're, our old sayings are, we're beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Uh, when we see someone who's not a Christian, we don't say, God-hating scum. We say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Right? That person's just like me, uh, except for the mercy that I've received that I didn't deserve. And when you start doing the us versus them dynamics, then it undermines compassion for them. Them. Jewishness isn't usually the, and Jew-Gentile isn't the us-them category for us very often. I'm sure, actually, in Europe, it's starting to be, again, somewhat, very troublingly. But for us, the Jew-Gentile isn't, the, isn't where the us-versus-them lines are drawn. For us, uh, most commonly now, the uh, us-versus-them is drawn politically, right? Uh, they, the others are different and worse because they are not us politically, they are them politically. And more and more, the walls grow high, and we don't even speak across these walls. And we find ourselves as Christians being willing to indulge in condescension towards them uh, rather than towards people who are us. We indulge 
in condescension and hatred. We're content to be the other's other in a way that undermines our mission as Christians. Undermines our mission as Christians. If we think of them as being worse people who are further from God than we are, people that we dislike and say we have nothing in common with, um, then we create walls and barriers for people coming into the faith that Jesus never intended to be put up. Let me just ask you this. If you had a friend who became a Christian who's on the other side of the political spectrum from you, and they became a Christian, embraced faith in Jesus Christ, but didn't change their political affiliation, would you be suspicious that their conversion was not sincere? Come to faith in Jesus, kept their, kept their same politics, different than yours. Are you suspicious they're really a Christian? Would you be? Because that's the kind of attitude that sterilizes us as Christians and makes us unable to speak about the hope we have to our friends and neighbors. All right. An us versus them attitude uh, creates huge problems for a church like this that wants to be a portal for new people coming into the faith. And wants to be a, a, a base for sending people out to communicate this message. Uh, if we let the us versus them uh, rise to a level of, of importance that's bigger than our common faith in Jesus Christ, then we'll be sterile. You just will. It's what I like about getting to come to church together uh, again in person is because when we come to the Lord's table, even if it's with the goofy uh, cups now instead of our beautiful... Anyway... We come to the Lord's table, we come down the aisle, red and blue Christians together, saying, you know what, our common faith in Jesus Christ and our connection to each other as a family of Christians matters immensely to us, and our political difference matters far less because of that. So we come red and blue down this aisle together, expressing our faith in Christ. That, that's something you don't see anywhere in our culture and I think it's one of the most beautiful things we have to put on display for people when we, when we recommend the Christian faith. Uh, look, these divisions that tear families apart are not tearing us apart because we have something more important in common. And that's going to be important for us if we want to be useful. So the warning sign for us is when you are processing information and the cultural divides... If you find yourself full of righteous indignation and anger towards them, you have to ask yourself, do I also have compassion for them? Not compassion hoping that one day they'll see the political light like I have and come to my side, but compassion for them to say, they need Jesus every bit as much as I do, not more, not less. Uh, and I have compassion for them. If I'm righteously indignant and it's not married to compassion, that's a warning sign that your compassion has failed. So that's, I know that's a hard test, and I'm not telling you I'm doing that very well. I'm telling you I want to, though. How do you grow in your compassion then? Hopefully last. It's not, um, it's not rocket surgery, as the coach used to say. <laughs> you pray, right? That's what Paul's doing. You know, he's, he's praying for his countrymen. Um, you don't... You don't do this. You don't say, man, whenever I get a heart of beautiful compassion like Paul had or Moses had when he prayed for the Israelites and said, Lord, curse me if you'll accept and forgive them. You don't say, if one day I get that beautiful heart of compassion, then I'll start praying for my friends. Because praying for your friends is how God builds that heart of compassion into you. 
You go ahead and pray. Pray like Nick did today. We want to want this. Right? We want to want compassion. And then you open your lives to people. Uh, people that are others. People that are different from you. Or even people that are like you in every way except your faith. Find out what your friends believe. Find out what their hopes are. Where are they looking for meaning in their lives? What sense do they make of God? Do they have a religious background? Ask them. Tell them what you, you think. Tell them how you process your griefs and loves and hopes and sense of meaning. Um, if it ever gets cool enough to sit outside with people again, you know, have people over and be hospitable. Uh, you can sit out and talk, uh, you know, without getting sick. Listen to people. Uh, don't just go to talk, but go to listen, to be a friend to someone, to love them. Uh, and find out what their objections are to the faith. You know, the, being public about being a Christian and trying to persuade your friends is not mostly a skill issue. You know, learning how to say just the right things. It's mostly a heart issue. It's mostly compassion. Do I love people or not? Do, am I willing to share my life with them? Am I willing to let them into my life and let them see me warts and all as a Christian or not? It's mostly a heart attitude, really. you got lots of places you can make connections outside the faith. You know, some of you are on a campus that you know, is working back towards 45,000 some odd people going to be around you and uh, lots of chance to talk and uh, get to know people, let them into your life. You know, a lot of you are part of this church because you want to be a part of outreach to people who aren't Christians. And, you know, there's international students and homeless people and refugees and prisoners. Uh, there are people who share your hobbies, your tennis team or your hiking group or soccer field or whatever you do for fun. Um, there are people there who are like you, who you can have compassion for. God could give you love for them. And as a church, it's what we're trying to be. The reason to start this church in Midtown in the first place is uh, so that we could be an access point for people coming into the faith in Midtown and, um, and on the campus. That's what we're trying to be. So we're trying to uh, rig the deck so that we will lean that way anyway. Uh, we're a mission church. We're not self-supporting financially yet, but we're trying to give away 20% of all of our money outside so the message of Jesus can go forward instead of just trying to create a, a safe, comfortable place for us to gather together as Christians. Right? We're trying to do this. We're trying to make an emphasis about inviting other people to come. Uh, come to Bible studies, come to church and worship with you to find out about the faith. We're trying to learn how when we gather together to speak well and not blow people up uh, in the conversation time afterwards with, with uh, political depth charges or with you know, religious condescending talk and things like that. We're trying to be hospitable to say, look, we, we remember something about what it means, what it was like not to believe. And we'd love to make this as easy for you as we can. By how we speak. So we're trying to do these things and trying to trying to not be a political action group as a church, but trying to be a purple church instead of a red or blue one. So, but if you haven't figured this out yet, the plan for this church to continue to grow and thrive and become a full-grown church on its own, the plan is you loving and having compassion on your friends. That's our strategy. <laughs> That's our program. It's for you to love and pray for and have compassion for your friends.
to open your lives to them, to take a risk, uh, being public about your Christian faith. Just telling people you go to church uh, can be a risk sometimes, but to take those steps out, that's our plan. That, that's how we're going to grow. If that doesn't happen, uh, we're not going to we're not going to become what we've longed to be and prayed for it to be, uh, because that's the way it's going to happen if it happens. So, I want you to want, like I want, to have a heart of compassion, like Jesus had for the people who were sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And rather than judging and condescending toward them, to move out in love and compassion. Now let's pray.